I'm so thankful again that God again is seeking and searching uh, to find you and find me and, and find all those that he's created to have a relationship. And I'm thankful that he's pursuing again that uh, wonderful relationship of love with each of us. I want to begin by telling you a story of Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry were brothers about 14, 15 years of age. And again, they uh, had never gone to church. They didn't know anything about church at all. Uh, They were kind of mischievous, known for that in their community. They lived a couple of doors down from the church. And so one day out of nowhere, they just show up at church. And the preacher's totally surprised, uh, wondering what's going on here, why are they at church? And uh, the next Sunday, they're back again. Well, well, the next Sunday, they're back again, and the preacher says, something's going on. I need to have a talk with them about their relationship with the Lord. And so he says, rather than doing them both at a time, I want to do one-on-one to make sure that one's not making a decision because of the other. And so he invites Tom, first of all, to come to his office and have that conversation. So Tom comes in, finds that time to, to be there, and again, he invites him into his office and has a chair there for him. And so Tom sits in the chair, and the preacher grabs a chair and pulls it right up to him, knee bone to knee bone. Looks him right in the eye and says, Tom, where's God at? Now, Tom doesn't have a clue what the, what the preacher's talking about or anything about God, so he's going to sit silent. So it seems like minutes go by and nothing happens, and all of a sudden the preacher raises his voice a little bit and says, Tom, where's God at? And of course, Tom's not going to say a word. He don't know what, what the preacher's talking about. And all of a sudden, the preacher just shouts out, Tom, where's God at? And it scares Tom so bad, he jumps up, runs out of the church, runs down the street, goes to his house, his bedroom's on the second floor, runs up, jumps in the closet. Jerry is sitting on the bed. And a moment he opens the door and says, Jerry, you better to get in here. They've lost God down at the church and they're trying to blame it on you and me. <laughs> Can I tell you? The world has lost sight of God. And the blame comes back to, let's point at ourselves, the church. Because we're to be on mission with him. We're to be making a difference. The word of God says we're to be light and a witness again to him, to, to the people everywhere. But, but for some reason, we're not sowing seeds. And if you don't sow seeds, a farmer knows you can't have a harvest. And so we're in a battle for the souls of people. And and we need to recognize that. Some years ago, our government did a study on the youth culture of today. And as they did a study, they called it at the end of the study, Code Blue. Now, you know what Code Blue means, right? Code Blue means, again, it's a matter of of seconds before this person's going to live or die. And and we need to, again, give attention right at this moment. And that's what that, that study said. They said back in the 1960s, our youth lost their sense of innocence. And everything became known. And again, our our youth uh, joined in on drugs and sex and uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. And and we lost our innocence. Back in the 90s, they said they lost their sense, uh, again, of truth. In the 70s, they lost their sense of lovableness. In, In the 80s, they lost their sense of hope. And one out of three, they said, thought about suicide. Can you imagine? That type of heartbeat among the young people, and you move it to our day, and again, we've even lost our sense of the respect of life today. And God is calling us again to get in the battle, church, for the souls of our our young people and the souls of this lost world. Because if not, again, they say, ever who wins this culture, is uh, this this generation is again going to win the battle. And we're losing the battle. I can remember just not many years ago, we had about 50% of people attending church. Today, if we're lucky to have 25% in church anywhere in America, 
And we're in a battle for the souls of people. And so I just want to encourage you today to make sure that you're understanding that God is on mission. And his mission is to reach everyone. His heartbeat is that none perish, no, not one. So let's turn to the scripture. I'm going to talk about three parables. Uh, In my uh, seminary days, they said that a parable had uh, one central truth. And I'm going to give you three central truths of the three parables that we're going to look at in our time together. But let's begin reading again, if you would, at at verse 1. And the scripture says, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, there are two groups of people that are listening to the teaching of Jesus in this setting. There's a group of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they're trying to catch Jesus in a mistake, in an error, so that they can condemn him and do away with him. They're looking for a reason to condemn him. But then there's the outcasts and the rejected people, and again, they hear him gladly. You know, it's said that Jesus eats with sinners, right? And if you're not careful, this is what you'll do. You'll accept exclude people who aren't just like you. Yeah. Thank God that he receives sinners, of which you and I are one of those. Uh, And if you're not careful, not only will you exclude people, you'll exclude yourself. By the reasoning, I've, I've made too many mistakes. I've messed up too many times. I'm not good enough for the love and grace of God. But this passage of Scripture reminds us that there is great rejoicing when one person again comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Great rejoicing. Now, that great rejoicing is not over buildings. That great rejoicing is not over programs and ministries. That great joy, as you watch the scripture unfold this morning, is when one person turns and receives the forgiveness of God. And so we have the first parable beginning at verse 4. So what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness, go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance." Now, the central truth of this parable of the lost sheep is this. There is no cost too great when it comes to a lost soul. No cost too great when it comes to a lost soul. You see this again in the understanding of the shepherd's responsibility of the sheepfold that he's uh, responsible for. And in this story, he's got a hundred sheep that he's giving care for. Now, the shepherd would get up even before it was daylight to go out to find pasture for that day for the sheep. And once he found pasture, he would again make sure all the poisonous plants are out. He would make sure that there's cool water, a a place of relaxation, plenty to eat. And and all, uh, again, uh, 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 of the enemy, again, that would uh, come to to take them, again, would be done away with. And so, again, he, he does all of that, comes back, then leads them out on a safe way into that pasture, cares for them all day long, then brings them back into the fold. And when he gets there, he knows everyone by name, he knows everyone by need and he's beginning to count them and there's 95 there's 96 there's 97 there's 98 there's 99 but there's one missing there's supposed to be a hundred so what does this shepherd do according to this parable Again, he's willing to risk all. He's going back into the dark of the night because it's, it's, it, the day has gone by now. Uh, there's ravines and there's wild animals and again, there's darkness and yet he's going to risk everything. He's tired and weary, but he's going to risk everything to find that sheep that is lost. 
And when he finds it, what does he do? He puts it on his shoulders and he carries it back into the fold again. And everyone rejoices that he has found that which was lost. The lost lamb, again, reminds us that God loves you as an individual. The saddest experience in life is to be lost. Uh, It speaks here of the spiritual condition of being eternally lost. But if you put that word lost in front of anything, it's not good. Put it in front of lost health. Anybody want to lose their health? I got a call yesterday. A pastor died. He just laid down to rest, and all of a sudden, he didn't wake up. A young man, uh, health, you, you, you can't buy it. Uh, again, and you put that word lost in front of, put that word lost in front of sight. Wow, can you imagine the rest of your life not being able to see anything? No color, no faces, uh, again, nothing around you. Put that word lost in front of a, a mind. Uh, again, I've known so many people, again, that, that, that we just were, were family to all, as church family, and all of a sudden they had dementia or Alzheimer's, and they didn't even know who their family was or who you were, and how sad and how tragic that is for that family to experience that, all of that. Uh, but then you put that word in front of a soul. God says that's the worst news there is. That a person would be separated from God forever and ever and ever and never know the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God. The bad news is there is lostness, but the good news is Jesus searches for us. Jesus searched for you. He searches for me, and he puts us on mission to search again for this world that is in need of God's love. Now, the world would say the need of the many outweigh the need of the one, but that's not scriptural. God would say the need of the one. He accepts everyone in the crowd who will accept his love and forgiveness. He desires a personal encounter. And 1% of that which is lost reminds us that every individual matters to God. I'm so thankful you matter to God. And that God gave his only begotten son for you, for me. Because that's the character of God. He loves the individual. He seeks the lost. Now, you know, religions is man is seeking God. But but Christianity, the the gospel is God seeking you and I. And he carried again that sheep once he found it back to the fold. Because salvation is not something we do for ourselves. Amen? Amen? Salvation is what God does for us. That's the gospel story. We couldn't do it. We owed a price we couldn't pay. But he paid that price that we could be redeemed and that we could be rescued and we could be saved. Now, I don't have any idea what your budget is. But if you spend all of your budget on one soul coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you hadn't wasted one penny of it. Because when you evaluate what God's value places on a soul, he places his only begotten son. That's who he gave. No greater cost, no greater gift, no greater, uh, again, love, again, than God giving his only begotten son that you could be saved, that I could be saved, that this world could be saved. Thank God that he seeks us to save us. The second parable begins at verse 8. And it says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, again, the central theme of, of this parable to me is this. The extent of the search depends on the value you place on that which is lost. Let me say that again. The extent of the search for that which is lost depends on the value that you place on that which is lost. 
And so again, God places great value on the lost. But do we place great value on the lost? Most scholars would tell you one of two things is happening in this particular parable. That, that again, this lost coin belongs probably either to a garland, which is a necklace that a lady would wear. And all of a sudden, as she's getting ready to put it on, she recognizes that one of the coins is missing. And that necklace, that garland recognizes that she's pure and therefore is acceptable for marriage in that culture of that day. And so it was very important to her. It was so important that what did she do? She turned the house upside down. She swept the whole house until she found it because the search depends on the value you place. Uh, other scholars say it was a part of a, the headdress of a, a wedding uh, veil. And, and so, again, you want everything perfect at your wedding, right? Hello, right? And so, again, she wanted to make sure that she found that coin to go in that headpiece to complete it so nothing was missing. And so, again, there was great value there, again, to turn the house upside down. So let me ask you, anybody missing from your fellowship? The value you place on them. Depends on how much you'll search for them. Any lost people living around you? The value you place on them depends on the search, the effort, the energy, the love that you will go to to find them and love them to Jesus Christ. And so God has gone to great measures to rescue us. And he wants us to be mindful that we must go to great measures to again rescue those that we love and care for that's all around us. Let me ask you, have you ever lost something? And all of a sudden again, you, you, you go searching because you need it and, and you turn your house upside down or turn the trash can upside down. I remember those teenage years, our girls had those retainers and again, they, they didn't place a lot of value on them. We placed a lot of value on them because it cost a lot, right? And so anytime they would lose one, we'd go through that trash can to try to find that retainer because we placed great value on that retainer, right? I remember one time we had a deacon's breakfast and uh, again, they'd given me a gift and for some reason I threw it in the trash can. Not, not by, it was by accident, I promise you. And so that afternoon, where was I at? I was in the dumpster at the church, again, going through to find that because I was going to be responsible for finding that because I put great value on what? On a gift they had given. I remember one time, it was the first church I pastored, first Halloween uh, time that we'd come to the church. And again, uh, back during, during those days, uh, you didn't lock your doors. And uh, so uh, I, we went in and went to bed and the young people uh, put eggs on the seat of my car. And I had no idea about it. And so the next morning before light, I had to go to the hospital to make a visit about six o'clock in the morning. So I jump in the car, not realizing anything has happened, head off to the hospital, going up and down the hall again to visit uh, the people that I need to see. And, and somebody taps him on the shoulder, says, hey, I believe you got a mess behind you. And sure enough, I had a mess behind me, a bunch of eggs all over the back of me. And so I got cleaned up and uh, again, I uh, uh, was wondering who in the world did that so I could get them back, right? Uh, but then I got home and I had to clean my car up. And in the cleaning of the car up, guess what I found? The diamond set in my wife's ring that we had lost months earlier. And so that was, again, worth that, right? Because of that which was lost that we found that was of great value to us. But I can tell you there's no greater value than a lost soul coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, God, heaven rejoices, and we should rejoice with that. Praise the Lord. Amen? Then you come to the last parable. And as you come again to verse 11, I want to remind you, there is something missing in this parable that's not missing in the first two. 
Now, I don't want you to speak of what it is, but you want to think about that for a moment. There's something missing that's in the first two parables. It's not in this parable. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land. He began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough in despair, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had what? Compassion ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now, the rest of the story is there's an elder brother at home. And that older brother, uh, again, has been there, has done everything the father's asked him to do. Uh, but again, when the, uh, this happens, he comes in, he won't even come into the party. He says, Father, as the father goes out to him, says, you've never done anything like that for me. And so he won't have anything to do with the, with the younger brother. So let's stop and think for a moment. Something's missing here that's present in the first two parables. As I think of the story, this is how it unfolds for me. It's a picture of God and his great love. Again, God in his great love. And you see the great compassion as he's represented by the father who looks every day waiting again for that son to return that he might run and have compassion and forgiveness and love for this son. I mean, uh, he is willing again for that son to go out into the world and live as he wants. God is willing for you to live just how you want to. That's your choice. He'll let you go, and he'll let you, again, make a mess of your life, but that's not his heart. He'll do everything he can, again, to rescue you and redeem you and invite you. And this is what I understand. As it represents God, God has done everything necessary for everyone in the world to be saved. When Jesus hung on that cross, paid sin's debt in full for all of mankind, God even stands today with open arms, welcoming anyone who will come believe and receive the grace of God. Am I right? And so that's the picture I get. And so that which is missing is there seems to be no one rescuing. Now I thank God for the Holy Spirit of God that convicts and the Holy Spirit of God that compels and the Holy Spirit of God that calls and makes alive the word of God into our heart as we hear it, that faith comes. Amen? Thank the Lord for that. But there needs to be a rescuer. And as I see the picture, it should be the elder brother. It should be because that pictures to me the church. The elder brother was given every blessing the father had. We're giving every spiritual blessing that the father has in Christ Jesus. Amen? That's what Ephesians says. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. And somehow or another, even the church is missing the joy and the blessing of, again, the fruitfulness of God's great love in our life, the power of God's great love in our life. And so we should be the one on mission we should be the one sowing the seeds. We should be the one searching for the lost. We should be one praying for the one and doing everything we can to build that relationship with that one that we might reach that one for Jesus Christ. 
And so I ask you, who's your one this morning? Who's your one? Here we have a defiant son, a broken-hearted father, a willful journey into the depths of depravity, an arrival at a place where hope dies. And then all of a sudden he comes to his senses and he begins a journey home. He's uncertain of the reception. Eyes are watching. Hope, uh, the heart is hoping. Age's feet is running. There's an embrace and a sea of joy overwhelms a desert of despair. Listen carefully in the next few minutes. Can I tell you as I unfold this parable, God loves you when you're wounding his heart. This father was willing to give the inheritance. Now, if you know anything about that culture, that wouldn't happen in that culture. Jesus is telling something that really is going to grip everyone there. Because again, if the son said, hey, I want my dad dead. I don't want anything to do with his religion. I want out of here no more rules. Again, he would not be allowed back. He would be stoned to death when he came back by the people there. Because that's what he was really saying by saying, give my inheritance. I don't want anything to do, dad, with you or your life, or your religion, or anything about you the rest of my life. But the father always loved his son. He always had, he always will. God loves you regardless of what you do to wound his heart. He always has, he always will. You cannot send away your place in God's heart. God will always love you and will redeem you if you will come in faith to him. God loves you when you're walking away from him. And all of a sudden, this son turns and leaves home and again turns his back on his dad. God loves you when you're wasting your life. And this is what he's doing. He's, he's living in riotous living. He's a prodigal living in a prodigal way. And all of a sudden, he reaches into his pocket and there's no more money. And when there's no more money, there's no more what? Friends. All his friends are gone. And here he is, destitute, helpless, and hopeless. And what does he do? He's willing to to feed swine. No one would do that in that culture that day. You wouldn't get that low for sure. That was just not thinkable. So Jesus is, I mean, the story he's telling is, is revealing great truth to everyone listening. And he's grabbing everybody's heart. And he says, I love you even when you're wallowing in sin. I love you when you're working your way back. But you and I know we can't work our way back, right? You might think you can work your way back. He's trying again to come up with, what can I say? And the only thing I know to say is, God, I've said, I've, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Would you take me back as one of your, 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 your servants? And so he's rehearsing that. He's wondering what the Father's going to think, what the Father's going to say. And so he's rehearsing all of that in the journey. God loves you when you're wrapped in his arms of forgiveness. Can you see the picture? Man, I can see that picture. I can see that picture. All of a sudden, the father sees him, and he goes running, and he grabs him. And I see that picture of my own uh, salvation experience when I came in faith to the father, and he wrapped me in his love. And again, just like that father wrapped his, his son in his arms and said, my son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and is found. And they begin to rejoice. God loves you when you welcome back home. And he's so thankful that you come back home. But the last thing I say to you is God loves you when you won't love him. God loves you if you never respond to his love. God still loves you. One of the greatest things that grips my heart in these days is there's so many prodigals. Prodigals of the church. So many of your family members, our family members, 
that somehow another has turned their back on the faith, turned their back on what, how you raised them, and are living for the world. And I know as I've preached across, again, Greensboro, preached for many years at Pleasant Garden, that hearts break when your kids are living as prodigals. And my heart breaks for you if you're in that setting. Because I know you've prayed many times with tears for your kids to come to faith in Christ. To somehow return with a gentleman at Pleasant Garden Church that about every three Sundays he'll be on his knees at the altar praying for his son that has just denounced Christ and his way of, of life. And his parents are so heart burdened over that. And so I want to stop just a moment, and I just want us to bow our hearts before the Lord. And I want to pray for those who are, again, here this morning that are praying for a prodigal. You have a prodigal in your family. And I would just wonder if you would just stand for a moment, if that's you, as I pray. Just, again, standing in the gap, praying together for God to stir.